0: Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne. And I'm with Justin Malia, uh, Director of Justin Malia Architecture. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Um, Justin, you've just recently completed a very interesting project. I feel we have to start with that project, which was in Clifton Hill. Yes. Won two major awards one in the multi-residential category from the Institute of Architects Victorian chapter and the other one in the same uh, by v- uh, AIA v- chapter for uh, sustainability. Yes, that's right. So two major awards. Yeah, that's quite thanks. a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was very pleased.
0: <laughs> you should be pleased, but it's, it's not just the design, it's the story of changing someone's life who really didn't know what to do with her plot of land. So it's something that could apply to literally anyone in the same position.
1: Yeah. So, I don't think it changed her life. I think her life changed the project. Yes. <laughs> well, to a, a, the but a project. really
0: interesting concept because she, for those who don't know of Justin's award-winning project, uh, she was living in a Edwardian-slash-federation house on her own, or yes. her kids had, had left home yes. at some point. So she kind of had this kind of largish house, but really be a bit lonely and also an underutilisation of really what could be.
1: Yes, that's right. Um, I mean, the, the property had a large garden to the side of it and uh, that had been overshadowed by a house to the rear and she loved her garden very much. But when she'd lost that, she sought to... Take advantage of the space in a in a different way, but at the same time, she'd been living in this house all by her, all by herself and having occasional guests or visitors or Internet. international students or visiting family—all those normal things, yeah. really. Um,
0: did she think about selling it? Because if someone had um, put up quite a you know a large structure in your back garden, or virtually in your back garden, and you don't like it, tendency is to say, "Look, I just don't like it anymore. I want to move." I'll get something small, I'll get an apartment, I'll get a small terrace. She didn't, she actually with you has, have addressed the problem of what she didn't like about the house.
1: Yeah, that's a good way of putting it because, um, I mean, she's a sensible, practical person. I mean, that these, these are real things, money and yeah. houses and property. Yeah. But I think she discussed it with her her sons and they really, they'd always lived in Clifton Hill. Uh, June had lived there for well over 30 years and they all decided they didn't want to leave Clifton Hill and so this was a way of trying to maintain the family connection to the sense of place, but also making it more usable and um, also um, ecologically sustainable, thinking about density and these sorts of things, mm. but also making it contextual and appropriate and respectful for so, the place.
0: So it's quite a complicated project in a sense. You've added on two units that can be lived in independently yes, to the north of this property and to the side. To the, yeah, to, to, the the s- really. to the east. To the east, yeah. really. And, but basically those two additional units can be used as one home or as two further separate units. So you can actually uh, separate them to make them into two. Yes. So it's right. not a straight just three units.
1: No. The, mo- the way to conceptualise it, I suppose, would be there's an existing house and then instead of just building a standard uh, townhouse on the spare bit of land, yeah. we've made this dividable house uh, so that's there's different configurations between the three, whether they're three or two or... Um...
0: So June, who's living there now, she lives in the larger of the two units, yes. new units, but she could live in number two and number three if she wanted to. She Depending could open who it up. she
1: has with her or her what kids or could come home. Or, yeah, whatever circumstances of life come up that determine what sort of space she needs. So...
0: Um, Justin, in terms of uh, the idea, when you first approached the client and came up with that solution was it something she kind of understood i mean it isn't that easy to understand in plan form i imagine
1: well it came or it depends what you're talking about the concept of the brief it It came from her mouth, but she hadn't conceptualised it architecturally. So when I heard how she was speaking about how she'd lived in the house before and how she wanted to live in the house in the future and all her aspirations for what she wanted to do, but also her disappointments about she would lose her garden, she would lose her trees, she accepted this, all of these sorts of things, it was the architectural task to bring all of that together in a creative way.
0: So what you did, you actually built up the rear of the property the land so you have elevated gardens at the rear of the site.
1: Yeah I mean it was the site slopes more than you can perceive from the street so it was about a half level rise from street to the back and at the back there was a really big beautiful beech tree that she really wanted to keep but had resigned herself to the fact that it would need to be knocked or taken away and so dealing with that rise in topography we sculpted down half a level to make a sort of a half basement and then up from there, the levels stepped at half levels with guard- embankment gardens uh, mediating between those half levels so that it provides easy and fluid circulation paths throughout the place. And,
0: um, Justin, you put a laser-cut screen across the back that snakes around the rear of the property. Yes. So that li- literally conceals that extended house to the north.
1: It does it- lots of things. It does that, but it also provides... Uh, council required uh, overlooking uh, to, to various other properties but also provides sunshading to the north so it does those three functions all together
0: um justin why don't you think people make more of this you know in terms of as an option you know is it because it's I don't see it out there being as an option for people. They don't know
1: about it. This style of living. Yes. Well, I think people live like this, but they just do it in houses that were built for a mum and a dad and two children. And most people's lives may have that at some point, but they there's the inevitable deaths or divorces or children returning or leaving or all these unexpected things. So I think a lot of, it's not unusual. I think most people are living this way, but uh, I think it's an interesting task for architecture to try to grapple with uh, how we respond to those sorts of briefs. And this was a situation where there was a particularly interesting client that had an open mind to things and and has made this happen, really. Uh, but I don't know why it doesn't happen more. I think, I mean, different things are happening. Yeah, uh, I but... mean,
0: you often you often get the case of the uh, separate house in the back garden and mm. it becomes like, you know, uh, kind of more independent. This one's kind of more complicated because it literally is the two are locked into an arrangement where you just open a, a bookcase and then the two could either be two or one. Yeah,
1: know? I think this is also my interest in... You know, I'm a bit sick of house extensions, where you get a nice old house and you knock down the 70s thing at the back and you put a fancy bit on the back. And so this was a method of uh, incorporating different elements at different levels, but also um, I have an interest in craftsmanship and and this uh, the detailing of how things go together. Again, to s- sort of just rattle off a whole yeah. lot of things. It's also, I think, the influence of... I spend quite a lot of time in Europe, and so often in these European cities you have this sense of different levels interacting with one another and there is a sense of surprise often especially when I've spent time in Italy, so palazzia joined to a garden, and uh, so I think there was a bit of influence of that. Also, parks that you see in Europe in established cities where there's a complexity to the space, where if you were to try to draw it in two-dimensional drawings, it would be very difficult to conceptualise and draw, but when you're there, it feels like it's natural, it's it's nature. So these were things that interested me about how I could incorporate complicated space in a manner that's simple and enjoyable or has a sense of delight to experience.
0: Um, Justin, what took you to Florence to start with? Because you spent a lot of time in Europe.
1: Yeah. You've um, got a practice here, but you also
0: spend time in... What was the, the draw? At the, the start, delight? I just
1: wanted to go. Like, I'd been to Italy on holidays before, but I, I met a number of people from Europe in various countries, some Swedish, various other people, and um, I could see their different approach to thinking about things. Even though in Australia there's so many people that have a background from Europe... I uh, like myself, but I—I felt. You're Italian. The, uh, my dad's family have an yeah. Italian background. My mum's family is Scottish, but um, I had always had—I I thought I knew it. I'd been there to visit, you know, I'd gone to tourist sites, but I wanted to live there and live there properly. So I went there. The idea was for six months, and then
0: How I long sort has of it never been? came
1: back. <laughs> oh, I did come back. I come back all the time, but uh, yeah. all my practice is here. But I keep going. Uh, it's been nine years now, but I've you know have children and met people and all of those sorts of and life things. And the family things. are there or here? They're all over the place as well at the moment. Uh, they're in Russia, actually, but uh, uh, <laughs> they're, they're, we travel around uh, all together, usually. Yeah.
0: Um, so Florence is important, and then you're also doing a doctorate in uh, fascist architecture.
1: Italian fascist architecture, yes.
0: It's very interesting.
1: Well, when I started spending lots of time in Italy and getting to know architecture there, and I, I teach at Monash Uni, uh regularly and they have a monitor has a a center in prato which is just 20 minutes outside of Mm -hmm. florence and so i've taught there for a semester and so getting involved with uh people at the university i mean i've encountered very interesting people there that encouraged me to maybe uh research these things that i'd become interested in you know what was the what was the trigger
0: for italian fascism
1: well i think um my supervisor who's Luke morgan who's an art historian uh we became good friends, and so we would just talk about things like sort of you and I are a little bit. Yeah. And uh, he sort of prompted me a, a bit about that th- because I wasn't talking so much about antiquity or the Renaissance, which are just in your face everywhere in Florence and in Italy. But I was more interested in this modernist architecture that was everywhere—that's run down and dirty and cracked. But um, you know, as an architect living in these spaces, feels in as though well, it's unnoticed. As well. Less in Florence, but but often in Florence. It's 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 all over the place. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was sort of the interest, and then I tried to just research it properly, uh, which is is it's an ongoing thing, but it's a very enjoyable thing to get into.
0: So what's the feeling like of discovering a new fascist Italian house?
1: Um, what, what
0: do you look for for people who don't know what it looks like? Because I've kind of got a, an image in my mind as to what I think it would look like. What are the kind of characteristics that really excite you when you see
1: it? Well, I mean, this is the thing about talking about Italian fascism and architecture: is that it's a, it's a period of time rather than a specific architectural style. So there's a lot of different stuff, and it's less the houses that I've been interested in. It's probably easiest to explain through uh, institutional or civic works. But you know, the classic fascist Italian architecture is the what's called the EUR Centre now. Like people often know it as the Square Colosseum. So uh, you know, there's lots of classical. Um, empire-type motifs like arches and columns and colonnades and that sort of stuff. So very classical. But it's completely stripped down, so no decoration or anything like that. Lots of um, statues, but in a fascist way, they're dealing with work and working for the state and these sorts of things. So it involves a lot of references to classicism and art and these sorts of things, but in a completely reinterpreted manner. And so that interests me. There's a really interesting intersection between really international-style modernism that these Italian architects were interested in, and then the, the influences of classicism that the fascist regime were effectively imposing upon them to say you need to reinforce that we're an important state connected to our history.
0: Um, Justin, would you, you would say then that you know, a lot of Le Corbusier, Corbusier's ideas were kind of uh, stripped back by the fascists to a very
1: um, you know, severe form can yeah. you see the connection between the two? Well, certainly the Italian yeah. modernists of that period. I mean, I, I look at the rationalists a lot, so that is really stripped back stylistically, but they refer to Le Corbusier all the time. My my feeling is that he was instrumental in uh, in their development, but then they, they took that and did lots of very different things with it. Uh, but the word severe comes up as like a complimentary word in a lot of uh, <laughs> Italian fascist uh, descriptions of architecture. I like so, that. <laughs> yeah, like... Uh,
0: um, would you say, you probably know then, um, Necki
1: Yes, of course. Uh,
0: ...before it was decorated in the 50s in a more lavish style would have been in the fascist style or not
1: quite? I think it's certainly correct to refer to that as a fascist architecture of that period. But as I said, the stylistically, it's, things are very diverse. Mm. Uh, like There's the Novi- novicentisti, which was a specific group that did quite um, lots of statues and and built-in sort of... Mm. Um, symbolism and that sort of thing in the architecture which is a completely different style uh,
0: I mean obviously that period and that style is a long way from Australia do you ever come across anything that has been strongly influenced by that style in Australia Well, um... who would you say comes close to that?
1: I guess it's difficult to deal, speak about Italian fascist architecture with relevance to Australia, but the closest thing, I think, is... Um, I mean, Melbourne has lots of brutalist architecture, but true brutalist architecture, like the Harold Holt Swim Centre and these places, where mm-hmm. it's an approach um, to architecture and society and institutional architecture that I find there are similarities to the way uh, the fascist architect or some fascist architects in Italy, not the, mm. the architects themselves were fascist, but the fascist period, uh, they were dealing with similar things. And this is something that I, interests me about this stuff, is that there's a social generosity to this, like a, a civic generosity to this, which I feel as though that's, been, that's often compromised in modern cities where everything's so capitalist-orientated. There's shopping centres and oh, you know, corporate, corporate skyscraper mm. foyers that are glazed, and they, these are... Be- are much more the civic public spaces of our cities, whereas these totalitarian regimes mm. weren't so concerned with capitalism or, or selling stuff. They were they were interested in other things. Which, well, selling architecture in a sense. They were using architecture to sell all the political ideas, yeah, I think, yes. in a pretty direct manner. Um,
0: what are the interesting things you're working on at the moment? I mean, is it difficult running a practice from Florence or do you have, you know, back and forward and you have clients around the world? How do you... How do
1: you work? Um, I mean, I work by myself effectively Mm -hmm. um, and I have lots of, I'd call them friends, that help me out. And so they can be students or graduates or experienced architects. And um, I draw upon, I mean, I've got quite a lot of these people and also in lots of different disciplines. So I can draw upon their help to get tasks done. Uh, But uh, I do spend most of my time in Australia. I am here a lot, and most of my projects are are here. Uh, So uh, that's the way I manage things.
0: what's exciting you at the moment, Justin?
1: Um, Well, I've always been interested in development-style work. Even though I feel passionately about creativity and dealing with architecture from that point of view, I don't see what... I feel as though it should be valued. It should make money. It shouldn't be a community uh, service or a a charity and so the idea of design-led development interests me very much and so I'm enthusiastic when I see Nightingale being um, so popular and really gaining traction but I don't see myself doing that style of of design-led development so I have been dealing with investors and I have a seven- townhouse project that I'm dealing with at the moment that is a creative, interesting, responsible project in its context, but it's as dense as it can be. It deals with uh, things I'm interested in architecture, but it's mainly private. There's no communal laundries. There's no uh, really village style, all these words that I think real estate has got onto now. Um, I mean, I'm I'm less interested in that myself, even though I see the value of how that can be a really, really great model, and there's really good examples of projects that do those no
0: great's really made a huge difference to Mm, the way developers are looking at the apartment model Mm. how do you you know ideally how do you how do you see melbourne evolving where do you think we should be going in say 20 years time because i mean people have been you know talking about high-rise developments as if it's you know the bees knees Mm. you know that we need to go higher and denser what's your thoughts
1: um, I think it's a really interesting time to be in Melbourne to, as a citizen and as a, certainly as an architect because if you believe everything that our politicians and, our, and the policies they're making are going to happen, the city will change enormously. I mean, it's a three or four or five million inhabitant city at the moment. They're talking about that expanding enormously. And if you think of London or Moscow or these yeah. these really large cities, you don't buy, go and buy a house five kilometres away from the middle of new york you it doesn't even cross your mind whereas we still have the idea that you can do that and i think these are big changes about how the population will deal with what a house is what property is what a normal average person can own in a a city like this when it's so much bigger
0: because in the 90s there seemed to be a real that's when apartments really start to kick in Mm. do you think people are kind of not regretting it but kind of looking for another option now you know i mean i think the townhouse as you're saying is a really good model because it's you've still got the sense of the garden and a sense of ownership which the apartment doesn't really have
1: i think it's also the feeling of a communal like a Stainless steel lift with mirrors that goes up to a corridor with rooms off it. I mean, that's a that's a way to live for, for sure. It's got a, a mm-hmm. large place in cities, but there's also lots of other ways. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm interested in uh, yeah, these more tactile or or. Yeah, the interesting combinations of space and how these things can interlock and engage with one another, mm. and engage with the multi-layered fabric of a of a city. I think these multi-layered ways of thinking, mm. of, thinking of things is a good way of, of
0: so, Gary. Very, very Italian, you know. In terms of, you know, nothing's overly direct.
1: You know, you're going to have to
0: discover it's still a sense of discovery.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, Italy has huge problems architecturally. You know, I'm not trying to... Um, <laughs> act as So that's a fairyland. But there are things coming from Australia, like it's obvious when you go to another place, you find things that you don't... you haven't seen so... and done in such an interesting way. So I pick up on the positives that I see there and they interest me and they're things I try to bring into me and my work, essentially being an Australian. I've lived here and grown up all my life. So I'm seeing the positives, but I would... By no means say this is a, you know, an ideal uh, arrangement. They've got terrible, mm. terrible problems in architecture yeah. in Italy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: we'll have you back for another time and discuss those. Um, look, thank you so much for coming on to the program today, Justin. Well done on all the awards. And uh, it is a really interesting project because I think people forget and tell me that, you know, designs do something for younger people. And really, I think it's increasingly becoming the concern of older people who actually want to transition into something else and really don't know what to do.
1: Yeah, I think uh, older people, I think, have more experience and are often more courageous, I think. Uh, that's my that's my experience. Uh, so June's a good example of that. She's been a great client.
0: Well, thank you, June. I hope you're <laughs> listening. And thank you, Justin, for coming onto the program
1: today. Thanks, Steve.
0: You've been listening to Justin Malia from Justin Malia Architecture and Stephen Crafty, Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne. Thanks so much for listening.